unless we have an inner conviction and are really quite sure that the Buddha's teaching will bring us great benefit even though we may not have experienced all of it yet or maybe none of it we can't practice satisfactorily that inner conviction and that great feeling of admiration for the teaching makes it possible to keep going again and again and again without that it's going to be such a half-hearted attempt that is splitting the heart in half what for? it's got to be a whole-hearted attempt and only then do we really feel what it means to have a spiritual base for everything that happens within you see even negative thoughts have a spiritual base they have arisen and they cease so they are impermanent they have arisen and create dukkha so they contain the second of the three characteristics and if we don't own them they contain the third of the three characteristics they are anatta they don't have a self unless we get in there and recognize it's either having a spiritual part or none it's nothing that can be done half we won't really reap the benefits of what we're doing here we can't I always like to use that simile we are never a little bit pregnant we are never a little bit on a spiritual path it's either all or nothing everything that happens is anicca dukkha anatta it doesn't matter what it is and with everything that happens if we see it that way we're practicing otherwise we're bogged down in in mundane reactions I like it I don't like it I'll have it I won't have it I'll become I'll get and so on and so forth what for? totally unnecessary this is nothing but the opportunity to have spiritual path and with that opportunity we should make use of it we talked about purification of mind mental states and emotional states the purification of mental and emotional states is not only important 
of benefit profitable, but without it there is no practice. Anybody who has ever paid attention to him or herself knows that a negative state creates non-meditation. And not only that, it also creates unhappiness. So mental, emotional states need to be purified. Who can purify them? Only we ourselves can. We have the instructions for supreme effort, for divine abidings, or for supreme emotions. It sounds so simple. Let's do it. There's nothing to think about. It's just to be done, that's all. With such clear instructions, how could one go wrong? Sometimes the clarity and simplicity is very misleading because it appears to be very simple that way. (coughs) Well, it might be, but it's not easy. And because it's simple, but not easy, people fall down on the job. The simplicity of it is gives us a wrong idea that because we've understood it, we can already do it. If we don't understand it, we'll never do it. But if we understand it, we still have to do it. So we had, we talked about that yesterday, the purification aspect, which brings about the insight because otherwise it's covered over with the impurity. And I was concerning also the gross acquired self that we had already talked about. <clears throat> so now we also have this mind made acquired self, which is, um, purified through the purification of mental-emotional state. Now, there is more to the analysis of the gross physical self and the little more subtle mind-made self. Namely, in the gross self we already talked about the inside method of taking the body apart into its 32 parts, into the four elements, which are meditation methods given by the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Foundations of Mindfulness. Now, the same applies to the mind-made self. And here we come to the meditation, inside meditation part, on the four aggregates that make up the mind, which is actually, together with causes and conditions, the next step on inside. We had mind and matter as the first step. We had arising and passing away as the next step. And then we did talk about the five aggregates which are together with cause and condition the next step on the inside path. So the method 
that we apply to investigating our mind, the parts of our mind that are operating can be done in the meditation itself. It takes effort to do that. But it can also be done outside of meditation. If one sits quietly and just recognizes the fact that one looks at something and with that scene we may actually be able to recognize a feeling that arises. It's not easy. And then the perception which says flower or beautiful or ugly. And then the reaction which says I like it or I don't like it. It's a very important thing to do. It has to be done if we ever want to get out of Dukkha. People think they want to get out of Dukkha. But unless the Dukkha becomes unbearable, they usually don't like to go through the Dukkha of the practice. Of course, if the other Dukkha is unbearable, they might be willing to go through that. But because it takes effort, clarity, one-pointedness, that too is not so easy. So, unless the dukkha is really strong enough and doesn't really want to do it, maybe. That's all right. That's everybody's choice. Anyway, the Buddha's instructions are there. One can do it or, or not do it. It's up to each person. But if we're outside and we're hearing a sound, we may actually, for instance, the sound of the waterfall, we may become aware of the pleasant feeling that that arouses. And then we may become aware of the mind saying, nice, or waterfall, or nice sound or rushing, or whatever the mind says. And then, the mind reacting to it. I'll come here more often, or this is a good place, or um, this place on the property, or whatever the mind's talking about, gives a reaction to it. Or we can hear maybe a truck backfiring, and get an unpleasant feeling within, almost as if something is hitting one. It's a strong sound. It can be as if something is hitting one. Almost physical, very physical, unpleasant feeling. And the mind saying, it might be even saying, <coughs> it might say truck backfiring, and then saying, I can't stand this. Or is this supposed to be a meditation center, or whatever the mind says. Some of reaction or can't you keep this place quiet or whatever the mind is into now it's essential to experience it absolutely utterly completely essential there is no way out 
if we want to get out of Dukkha. We've got to get to know what happens in our mind. And it's not enough to know I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling unhappy, I can't stand this person, I like that one, that's not enough. We've got to know how it arises. This is the only reason why the Buddha analyzed it into its bits and pieces. First, there is the sense contact of any kind. It may be thinking, of course, too. We can think, that's also a sense contact. Then there is feeling. And with the feeling, then there is the perceiving. Now, the perception which puts us through the state of consciousness we're in and then there is the reaction. The perceiving on its lowest level is nothing but labeling. And the labeling is also, of course, very much um, dependent upon the state of consciousness we're in. We could, for instance, a truck backfiring. If we say truck backfiring, we're in a state of consciousness which is fairly equanimous. But if we say, this is awful, then we are already in a negative state. It's already a negative state of consciousness. And then comes the mental formation which says, I can't stand this, I'm going home, or whatever. But if we don't ever get to know how this operates, we'll never get out of the idea that we own all that stuff. That every bit of it is owned. Now, after we have seen how it operates, one after the other, again and again and again, it never stops. Then we might get in there and look and see, do I own any of this? Do I own the feeling? Well, if I own it, why is it gone? Do I own the mental formation, the reaction? Or how about owning these awful ones? Why don't I just own the nice ones? And but who's going to own the other ones? Can I give them away to somebody? Anybody want them? Nobody wants them. So I've got to keep them. So I own the whole whole lot. So why do I own things which I don't really want to have? Make an inquiry. Who is the owner? Who is the owner that has this ownership right and doesn't exercise them? Because he keeps anything that keeps coming and always thinks it's me. Inside methods. All methods are only methods, but if we don't use them, nothing happens. The Buddha gave them so that we could use them. And if we're serious about a spiritual path, we need to be serious about all of it. You know, it's like getting married. Maybe you're only serious about one bit of that. Maybe only the sexual aspect, and the rest doesn't matter. You know, you keep your, you don't bring your money home to buy food or anything. I mean, it's not going to work, is it? If you get married, you've got to be serious about the whole thing. You can't just have just one bit of it. The same with the spiritual part. Either one is serious about all of it, the whole lot, and takes the whole thing on, or the whole thing is going to be a mixture of the world imbued with a bit of spiritual, um, experiences which one then thinks are the path but they're not it has to be all of it the experiences themselves do not constitute the path 
it's that determined investigation into the supposed self as far as body and mind are concerned which constitutes the past so we have all the ingredients to do that with now if we investigate the five aggregates the four in, in this case the mind aggregate it will become easier to recognize the fact that the mind is also not me but it needs to be done there's no way that this statement will help anybody ever we have to do it and the way to do it is to put our our direction in that way to determine to investigate and find out where is this me sitting in all that first to find the four that alone already prevents difficulty for most people find the four aspects of mind how they operate most people can't even do that but in the if one is fairly quiet and concentrated that should be possible quite easily actually and then find out who is this owner who is this person that is seeing hearing tasting touching smelling and thinking and losing it all immediately and reacting to it and then losing that again and having something new arise where is this me and all this conglomeration of coming and going whichever way you like to investigate it well that these are the two ways of looking at the idea of the self that sits in the mind to get rid of the self that sits in the body in the actual physical body it's a little easier but it appears as if there's somebody sitting inside that body that is looking out through the eyes and hearing through the ears sitting somewhere in here can't quite find the spot but somewhere there it's got to be sitting there because otherwise who's doing all this now because of that difficulty we have to find causes and conditions so what is causing what now we have already gone through in quite a lot of detail through dependent arising use it it's not just a story all of what the Buddha taught every little bit of it is for gaining insight into our mistaken view of self and the world how does it all come about what is happening now causes and conditions the causes for the feelings are the sense contacts the causes for the perceptions and the states of consciousness are the feelings the causes for the mental formations are the perceptions now somebody might hear a truck backfiring and think it's fireworks and there's a fair going on and say oh fireworks and the reaction is wonderful I'm going there well obviously it's a wrong perception but it is a totally different state of consciousness a totally different mental formation now to see those causes and um, working cause and effect working to really see that that 
breaks down the idea of self. And we see that each one is dependent upon the previous one. But we don't usually even go into that direction. We just accept everything that we're thinking and everything that we're, we're seeing and everything that we're uh, eating and everything that we're wanting as just, just me. And uh, we also make excuses for it and justify it and, uh, and uh, pretend that that's the way one should be or we might even pretend that one is, that's not the way that's the way one shouldn't be. But whatever it is, it's all based on the idea that there's somebody there that's doing all that. But if we look at the causes and the effects of it, we can get a very clear view that everything is just depending upon a previous condition. That's all. Nothing else. There's a previous condition from which this has arisen. But we have to practice it. Now, for instance, with this physical body, which is depending upon physical food in order to continue living. Now, that physical food we look upon as cooking, shopping, nice meals, spices, herbs, tasting good, health food, and all the rest. All nonsense. The whole thing. All based on the idea that this is me. In reality, the only thing that's actually existing is the desire for survival and therefore shoveling food into the body then the fire element breaking it down digesting it and then the wind element excreting it and then shoveling it again having it breaking broken down again digesting it again and excreting it the whole thing over and over and over and it's not all the other stuff that we put on it and because we put that other stuff on it, in fact, we, it's a huge industry, the food industry and the restaurants and all the rest of it. I mean, it's probably the biggest there is um, because it's necessary for survival. We make such a big deal out of it. Chefs are getting very well paid and uh, they get quite famous also on top of it because we make all this out of it. We don't even want to know about this digestion and that excreting. We just want to know about the taste. One part of it. Just the taste. And maybe the looks of it. That's all we want or are interested in. But just imagine for a minute if you're sitting in the most expensive restaurant and everything is beautifully um, served, looks lovely, and you take a bite out of this beautiful served uh, meal there and something's wrong and you spit it out. Does anybody want it? And nobody wants it anymore. It's finished. It's awful. And a second ago, it was wonderful. But nobody wants to know about these things. We want to remain a one lump person that has all these wonderful things that can come through the senses. That doesn't mean you're not supposed to 
I have a good taste in food. In fact, it's absolutely essential because otherwise there is no saliva and it doesn't digest well. So, but one should have a clear comprehension of what all these sense contexts actually mean. They mean survival and nothing else. And they are all connected with cause and condition. Now, the first cause is Bhavatanha, craving to be. Then comes the recurrence of making this person be. So we eat and we eat and we eat every day three times. Every day, every day, every day. And then, as we eat, all these things are happening in order to keep these four elements together. It wouldn't happen otherwise. The water element's got to be in there. Saliva has to be with the food. Fire element has to be in there. Wind element has to be in there, otherwise you can't excrete. And the um, the earth element, of course, is the solidity of the food until it's broken down. So all this can be seen. And when we see that, the self starts crumbling a little. And when it crumbles a little, we may one day be able to actually let go of it. We, the Buddha over and over says, put your mind in that direction. Take it away from where it is and put it in that direction. Find the truth, the absolute truth. In the relative truth, of course there are French restaurants that charge a fortune to have nice meals. That's relative truth. Nothing wrong with relative truth. But absolute truth is what I've just described. So we have cause and effect. And they're all have a condition to arise. And this we need to see. If we, we see ourselves like that, and the same, of course, goes to the other sense context. This is more graphic, the one with the taste. But it's the same thing happens with seeing, hearing, and, and smelling, and uh, touching. Everything exactly the same like that. It's not as graphic, it's not as uh, strong. Well, you've got the opportunity here to know about it. Go out there, sit on a bench or sit on a rock and do it. Have the touch sensation and then what? Have a feeling from the touch sensation. And then, then you say rock or hurt or hard or whatever. Or maybe you might remember what I said and you might say perception. And then the mental formation not very comfortable, I've got to get a cushion. It happens with everything. It's all got cause and effect, conditions happening. And the only reason that we don't see it is because we don't want it. That's, o- that's the only reason. Because it goes against the ingrained ego support system that we built up and which we try to persevere in and which we like to preserve and keep going. We don't want to see it. That's the only reason. Otherwise, we could see it simply and easily. I mean, a child can see it, but we don't want to. And we need to put our mind in that direction if we want to get out of Dukkha. If there's no other way to get out of Dukkha, Dukkha will remain. Dukkha is. There's no two ways about it. We We can be as intelligent as anything. We can be having as good karma as anything. Dukkha is because everything is impermanent, everything moves. The richest people have lots 
Sukha. The healthiest people get Sukha. Everybody has Sukha. There's no way out. But we can get out of Sukha, but only if we get out of self. And this is the genius and the uniqueness of the Buddha's teaching that has never been repeated in exactly such clarity. It's always been experienced by all great um, spiritual masters, but the clarity of the explanation has been unique with the Buddha. So with the mind-made uh, body, which, you know, the mind-made self, rather, not mind-made body, mind-made self, um, we, we can investigate the mind, and we can investigate, which are the four aggregates, and we can investigate cause and condition. Now, this investigation that I'm talking about here is not something that's confined to one meditation session. To investigate one's own aggregates, the four aggregates of the mind, and to see in our sense contact all the conditions that arise and how it arises, this is a constant contemplative attitude towards oneself. That is the kind of contemplative attitude which will bring about an opening of the mind towards a way of looking at oneself which is quite different from any other way that one has ever looked at oneself. It just changes it. Now, you have to realize, I'm going to repeat this because I've said it many times but I'm going to repeat it again, that there are two pathways calm and insight. And calm, the mind that goes into the absorptions, any one of them, is a kind of mind which becomes calm enough to see clearly. You can only see to the bottom of the ocean if there's no turbulence in the ocean. If there are waves, you only see the waves. You can't see to the bottom. So calm is a necessary means, but it isn't the result. The result is inside. And since we can't always be in the absorptions and cannot walk around in them constantly, we can use time when we don't sit in formal meditation for this contemplative endeavor to see ourselves in a different light. Just see ourselves differently. That's all. And when we become objective enough to see ourselves differently, it's such an such an opening of the mind where the mind can do nothing but say, of course. And that is the usual kind of reaction of the mind when it says, has had an insight. Because all we do is we see something long known in a different light. And that is why the mind says, of course, it's like that. There is this person, but it's constantly only reacting to sense contact. So who's that, who's doing all that? It's an automatic reaction. And there's nothing there that, that can be held on to. There's nothing there that has a solid core within.
Mm. Now the third kind of self that is postulated by Potapada, who, as I said to you before, was a spiritual practitioner, and therefore he had all these words on hand, like a gross acquired self and a mind made acquired self, and now he's got a formless acquired self. So he is thinking of himself. Uh, if all these other two are not really a self, then obviously there must be a self which is a higher self. In our in English, usually spelled with a, with a capital S, and to be found in all esoteric literature, the higher self, and that's what he's talking about. That's what Potapada's interest is now. So he's given up on the body self and he's given up on the mind made, mind uh, acquired self, so now he's on to the higher self, the formless self. So obviously that must be something that doesn't have a body and it is a self which is strictly in a state of, um, state of consciousness on a higher level. It's something that this is actually one of the fetters which the non-returner is still attached to, wanting to be reborn in the formless realm, in the highest realm, because that little bit of self-idea is still there, so the non-returner doesn't really, I mean, has, has no interest in the uh, human realm because he's, you know, seen that that's a rather unfortunate existence. And he hasn't got any interest in the deva realms where there are the um, more subtle bodies, but he still has an interest in the formless realms. And so this formless, um, formless um, self can be likened to the nobody, of course there's no physical body, but it is the highest state of consciousness, that me. Now, maybe that Potapada doesn't actually think that he's reached that already, but maybe he wants to reach that and has that as his goal, that now he, me, big self, capital S, is going to be the highest state of consciousness. And there, the Buddha says, Potapada, if others ask us, what is this formless acquired self? Being, uh, whose abandonment you preach, being so asked, we should reply, this is that formless acquired self, Well, this, this is, is of course again a Pali word which is hard to um, translate to what he says. This very one that you see is the explanation for, in Pali it just says this is, but this very one that you see, well obviously you can't see with your physical eye a formless self, but you can certainly see inside of yourself an idea 
that there is such a thing as a higher state of consciousness which I want to be, so that it's me then with a capital S as a higher self. Is that clear? Hmm? Clear? Okay. Yeah? <laughs> I'd be glad to say it again. <laughs> it's clear. Yeah. Sorry? I'll say it again. <laughs> okay. Well, the Buddha says, um, Potapada, if others ask us, what friend is this formless acquired self whose abandonment you preach? And being so asked, we should reply, this very one that you see, that formless acquired self, for the getting rid of which we teach a doctrine, what do you think, Potapada? Does not that statement turn out to be well-founded? Well, it's not a long statement. What we are looking at is that we can't see a formless self without the physical eye, but we can certainly have see it with our ideation, with our idea that there is such a self that has the highest state of consciousness, it's always happy, it's wonderful self, that is uh, sort of sitting on the right hand of God or something like that. And uh, well, if we don't like that idea, we can say it's in the highest Brahma realm. So it is just some higher self with a capital S which has a, a, a perfect state of consciousness. And that is then the acquired formless self. Right? Uh, I don't know because he talks about that later that yes it, it's not really because the soul uh, doesn't have to be so wonderful I mean I don't know I mean the soul contains everything Buddha talks about soul somewhere along the line hmm? that's the over the over yeah more like that that's right. yes something like that yes paradise that type of thing well where that everything is you know, wonderful but it's no more like not paradise I take that back it's more the state of consciousness which is the highest self that we have the, the, the yeah, over soul or highest self and you can find that in all esoteric lit literature with a capital S I mean it's everywhere and it's advertised as, as, as uh, courses and everything to find your real self to find your highest self to find your, your, your true self, anything, you know. This is what we're talking about here. This is the formless or quiet self. Cosmic consciousness is universal consciousness. That has to be universal consciousness. And universal consciousness and cosmic consciousness do not contain anybody private in that. I mean, this is this thing here, the formless acquired self contains Potapada in it. He is going to be this great self, you know, like everybody here would also like to be a great self. Mm -hmm. That's what the Buddha preaches, the abandonment of which he preaches. Right? Uh, Aufgeben. Aufgeben. Los werden. 
Well, trust me, consciousness is just all oh, no, let's call it universal consciousness. Let's not get into the esoteric uh, uh, language. Um, universal consciousness is uh, just consciousness, but it isn't personal. But the higher self is personal. That's put apart of having a higher self. Hmm? That's his self getting a little bit refined or more refined. So instead of just being put apart an ordinary Brahman, he's going to be a, 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 a purified self, nice self, good self. It does have no connection with universal consciousness. I mean, it's just a, a, has a, absolutely nothing to do with one or the other. There's no connection. Universal consciousness. Well, what do you think? <laughs> not the same thing. No, not the same thing. I have already explained that, you know. Universal consciousness is a sixth jhana. And I've gone through that in all detail. And I've explained it right, left, and in all, in all directions. It's the same as universal consciousness. Exactly the same. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yes. Yes. Mm. I wouldn't have a clue. I don't read you. <laughs> I confine myself to the Buddha. <laughs> not true, I have read you, but only partially, not very, very exactly. Um, the uh, in infinity of consciousness and universal consciousness are one of the same thing. And uh, there is a, it's not this, it's not this at all. I mean, if it was this, it would be called this. The exactness of the language of the Buddha is also something that helps us to understand. If this was infinity of consciousness, he'd call it infinity of consciousness. He's calling it the formless acquired self. Well, obviously, that cannot be the same as the universal consciousness, a formless acquired self. There's a self there, right? Is that clear? That there's a self there? That's what it's all about, that there's a self there. Is anybody unclear about the self that's there? Well, 
No, he's not having reference to Janus when he's doing that. Oh, yeah. No. It's got nothing to do with anything that has that has universal consciousness or infinity of consciousness in it. Nothing like that. He's talking about a self that is having a higher, high state of consciousness. That's all he's talking about. And he probably hasn't experienced anything, or he most likely hasn't experienced the thing which has shown him that there isn't any self. He wants to have a nice self. First he's got a body self which he wasn't satisfied with. He accepted the Buddha's explanation that there wasn't a body which was a self. Now that he also accepted the fact that the mind wasn't a self, he still would like to have a self like everybody else would like to sell, but this one's supposed to be the nicest there is, so it's going to be the highest state of consciousness, the formless one. Hmm? So that, that's the one he's now settled on. That's the one he wants. So, now he can't, now we, I think we've had this simile already with the palace, yes. And it comes here again. It is just as if a man were to build a staircase for a palace which was below that palace. They might say to him, well now, the staircase for a palace that you're building, do you know whether the palace will face east or west, north or south, be high, low or medium? And he would say, this staircase is right under the palace. Don't you think that man's statement would be well founded? Certainly, Lord. You know, we had, before we had a, staircase that was being built and the man didn't even know uh, what kind of palace he was getting so that man's talk was stupid the Buddha said but here he's using it uh, it isn't it isn't necessary here in this uh, simile to know what kind of uh, uh, height it has and where it's facing because the staircase is underneath the palace so it doesn't matter so what the Buddha is trying to say is that he has a well-founded statement made of well-founded statement and in the same way Potapada, if others ask us about the gross acquired self the mind-made acquired self and the formless acquired self we reply this is this, this very one that you see is the gross or mind-made or formless self, whereby defiling mental states disappear and states tending to purification grow strong and one gains and remains in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now, having realized and attained it by one's own super-knowledge. Don't you think that statement is well-founded? Certainly, Lord. Now, people often complain that the Buddhist uh, discourses are repetitive. But you've just had an example of it, how repetitive they ought to be. People just don't understand what it's all about. What is a formless acquired self? What is universal consciousness? He's got to repeat himself. People don't know what, what's going on. Are, the mind of an ordinary person is so imbued with the worldly understanding of the sense context and the automatic reaction to the sense context that all of that which is beyond that needs 
not only repeated explanation, but it needs the personal concentration in the meditation so that eventually there comes the personal experience. But it is um, also a personal experience that one has to repeat over and over again, and yet it still remains outside of one's ability to grasp. For a moment, there may be a grasping, and then it disappears, and another grasping, and it disappears. I always compare that to the pictures that we see in uh, children's coloring books, where there's a head of a cow in the uh, fork of a tree, and you can hardly see it because all the leaves are in the f- in, on the tree. And then you look very hard, you know, it says underneath, where's the head of the cow? And then you look very hard, and then you see it. And a moment later, you don't see it anymore. All you see is the leaves. And then you look again, and there it is again. This is the same here. One moment you see it, and the next moment it's gone again. We're so imbued and so habitually um, uh, thought-provoked into this mentality that is on the level of the human everyday life that this all this is very difficult to um, really even understand never mind practice but because it's difficult we must use the method there are some people a very few who don't need method who come to it without the method most people have to have a method they can't do it without a method there's just no way they're ever going to get at it Some of the methods are just contemplative, just to contemplate what we are, and others are meditative to actually do something. So here he says that, now this is a well-founded statement, just like it's a well-founded statement that the stairway is underneath the palace, and therefore you don't have to know which uh, direction it's facing or how big it is. Here we have the, um, the purification of the mental, mental emotional states and because we purify them then eventually we do get inside knowledge and with that inside knowledge it's one's own super knowledge and because of that we have then realized that there isn't a self. So now Potapada quite agrees with all that to the great disgust of all his friends as you heard before who didn't like the idea that he was so agreeable to the Buddha because the Buddha was a sort of like a um, competition, a huh? competition teacher. Now here comes a new, uh, a new angle in this whole story. At this, Chitta, son of the elephant trainer, said to the Lord, Lord, whenever the gross acquired self is present, would it be wrong to assume the existence of the mind-made acquired self or of the formless acquired self? Does only the gross acquired self truly exist then? And similarly, with the mind made and the formless acquired self. Chitta, whenever the gross acquired self is present, we do not at that time speak of a mind made acquired self. We do not speak of a formless acquired self. We speak only of a gross acquired self. Whenever the mind made acquired self is present, we speak only of that. Whenever the formless is present, we speak only of that. What Shita wants to know is whether when we are 
thinking that we are this person in the body, are we at the same time also the person that is in existing in the mind or in the higher state of consciousness in the formless? And the Buddha says, no, only one at a time. We cannot be aware of all three at the same time. We can be aware of one after the other, but if we think of ourselves as this body, we certainly don't think of ourselves as anything else. But we may at another time do that. So he says, Chitta, suppose they were to ask you, did you exist in the past or didn't you? Will you exist in the future or won't you? Do you exist now or don't you? How would you answer? Lord, if I were asked such a question, I would say, I did exist in the past, and I did not not exist. Was this typically Indian answer? I did not not exist. A double negative makes a positive. Huh? I shall exist in the future. I shall not not exist. Double negative again. I do exist now. I do not not exist. That Lord would be my answer. But Chitta, if they ask, the past acquired self that you had, is that your only true acquired self? And are the future and present ones false? Or is the one you will have in the future the only true one? And are the past and present ones false? Or is your present acquired self the only true one? And are the past and future ones false? How would you reply? Lord, if they asked me these things, I would reply, my past acquired self was at that time my only true one, and the future and present ones were false. My future acquired self will then be the only true one. The past and present ones will be false. My present acquired self is now the only true one at this time, and the past and future ones are false. That's how I would reply. In just the same way, Chitta, whenever the gross acquired self is present, we do not at that time speak of a mind-made one or of a formless one. So in other words, we can't say that we have all three at the same time. We either have this or that, right? and the other ones are not existing at the time. I don't know why Chitta wants to know that, but the um, what we can see out of this is wherever we put our mind, that is true for us at that time. So if we put our mind on being angry, that's true for us at that time. It was utter foolishness. But if we put our mind on experiencing higher states of consciousness and purifying mental and emotional states by substituting the negative with the positive, that's what we know and nothing else. And this is the very important teaching which is embedded in this, that we only know where we put our mind. So we are fooled, which the Buddha often enough said that we are, if we put our mind on the wrong thing. The word fool, by the way, in, in Pali, is bala, B-A-L-A, which also means child. So you can pick whichever you like to do. He said we all are this until we are enlightened. So it's the same word for both. And it doesn't mean that children are fools, it just means that we are childish. That's all it means. So we can only have as a true sense of knowing that where we put our mind. And if we want to protect our mind, we've got to put it there where it is protected. 
And if we don't protect our mind, we are actually harming ourselves tremendously because we all protect our body. We don't just walk through the bush and getting scratched everywhere. We watch out that we don't go into the thorns and that we watch out that we don't uh, stumble over rocks. We do protect our body from harm if we can so that we don't have just connection with all the things around us which could be dangerous to the body, scratching and falling and uh, getting caught in, uh, um, in roots and that type of thing. Now, if we are smart enough to protect our body, we must be smart enough to protect our mind. And that protection means that we put our mind where we want it to be. We don't allow it to roam. Now, you know very well that we can't meditate when the mind is allowed to roam and go wherever it wants to go. So, we protect it not only in the meditation from going concentrated, being concentrated, but we protect it in everyday life, under all situations, to remain on a positive level, on a level where we have connection to that which is good and pure within universal consciousness. We can touch upon it any time if we want to. And we, we protect the mind from roaming because if we allow it to do that, it will touch upon anything. Just like we get near to sticks and stones with the body if we allow it to go anywhere the mind will also touch upon anything if it will go anywhere. So we will we, we'll rein it in like a horse on a, on a, that, has, um, that has been trained well and where we are using the reins to pull it in when it wants to gallop away. We don't allow that to happen because it's very hurtful to ourselves. Just like we scratch the body, it's much more hurtful to scratch the mind. And within universal consciousness, everything exists. That's why it's called universal. Infinite, doesn't matter what you call it. Everything exists. So if we put our mind on that which is good and pure, that's where our connection is, that's what we know. If we put our mind on that which is negative and unpleasant and which exists also, well, obviously that's what we get into the mind. It exists just as much. And this is actually what the Buddha is teaching here, and he's teaching it in a very simple example, and um, uh, very, very clearly that if you put your mind, uh, if, you're, if you are in the, in the present, that's all you know, the present self. But in the past, you knew the past, in the past you knew your past self, because that's what the present was then. And the future, you knew, know the future self, because that's what the present is then. So you can't know anything else, and if you're thinking of your this self as being you, well, you can't think of a formless one of being you. You can't think of two things at the same time. This is the reality you're in. So wherever we put our mind, that's our reality. There is no other. So if we put our mind in, in, in fantasies, that's the reality then, fantasies. We live in fantasies. But of course, the relative reality that exists all around us will pull us out of those fantasies and give us unhappiness. But if we put us, our mind on goodness and purity, 
then we can take that into the relative reality. Because the goodness and purity will have an effect on our relative reality in which we live, which is this one here in which we live. A person who lives in absolute reality who hasn't got itself, hasn't got any of those three selves, or six selves, I should say, uh, no, even three times three, nine selves, nine different selves, three different kinds in three different modes of time, nine different selves. Um, such a person who hasn't got any of those nine, well, obviously, the attention is directed towards that and so there is in the relative reality in which that person also has to live no problem at all so it's entirely up to us what we do with our mind and the meditation has that as its uh, training the trained mind the trained mind which puts itself where it wants to be the Buddha said we have no greater no greater harm can come to us than an untrained mind. No enemy can, sorry, no enemy can do us greater harm than an untrained mind. No friends or parents can do us more good than a trained mind. We have no greater uh, friend and, and assistance and ally than a trained mind. And that's what the meditation is doing for us. If we can pinpoint in meditation where we're at, we must be able to do that in daily life. Otherwise, we, our um, daily life, our thinking aspect in daily life, will again and again uh, fault our meditation also, because it brings us down to a level where we are connected to the impurity so that we again have to work ourselves out of it. But it's not necessary to do that. Quite clear? Totally clear or totally unclear? Hmm? Clear? Clear. Good. Wonderful. Now we'll do it. So, now where was I? And just the same thing. And now the Buddha gives another example. In just the same way, Chitta, from the cow we get milk, from the milk we get curds, from the curds we get butter, from the butter we get ghee, from the ghee cream, from the ghee cream of ghee. And when there is milk, we don't speak of curds, of butter, ghee, or cream of ghee. We speak of milk. And when there are curds, we don't speak of butter. When there is cream of ghee, we speak of cream of ghee. So whatever it is that we have, that's what we talk about, not what we think of, huh? So too, whenever the gross acquired self is present, we do not speak of the mind made or formless. Whenever the mind made is present, we do not speak of the gross or formless. Whenever the formless is present, we do not speak of the gross or the mind made. We speak of the formless acquired self. But Chitta, these are merely names, expressions, terms of speech, designations in common use in the world, which the Tathagata uses without misapprehending them. Now that's and there's an interesting little verse here. Read that. Um, the uh, monk uh, Buddha Dasa in Thailand wrote an interesting book about that 
two kinds of language. The um, language that we use in everyday life, and then the Dhamma language. And this is what the Buddha is actually saying here. I mean, not that he, that Buddha does have referring to this, not the Buddha, Buddha does. Um, he's actually saying that, that he's using just expressions which are in common use, but he's using them without any um, misunderstanding. So there's a little verse that says, Two truths the Buddha, best of all who speak, declared, conventional and ultimate. No third can be. Terms agreed are true by usage of the world. Words of ultimate significance are true in terms of Dhamma. Thus the Lord, a teacher he who is skilled in this world's speech, can use it and not lie. It's a very important, actually. Um, there's a constant misunderstanding, and it uh, permeates practically everyone's misunderstanding of the Dhamma who hasn't had the experience of non-self. It's that expression when people say, well, if I don't exist, why am I sitting here and getting knee pains? That uh, reaction. And if I don't exist, um, why am I trying? Who is trying to purify whom? The word I is common usage. And it's got to be used. There's no way one can speak or write without it. There was a, a person in England once who thought he was an arahant. This is not so long ago, but 20 years ago. And he wrote a letter to a very famous monk in Thailand, whom I know. And uh, in this letter, and this famous monk in Thailand didn't know English, uh, so, or not, well, a little, but not very much. And so he gave it to an English monk to read this letter and it was impossible to understand it didn't have any meaning in it the, the man in England had left out every I me mine he she everything left out so he was using common usage language in ultimate way doesn't make any sense anymore the whole letter was meaningless no way one can do that so that's what this is saying here. Two truths the Buddha declares. Conventional, the way we talk, and ultimate. Absolute. Huh? No third there is. There's no third truth. Terms agreed are true by usage of the world. We have agreed on using them that way. So we know what we mean. So words of ultimate significance are true in terms of Dhamma. Now in this case the word Dhamma means phenomena. So, when we use words of ultimate significance, the ultimate truth, they are true in the terms of dhammas, in terms of phenomena. So we can only talk about phenomena. And that's what the Abhidhamma does. The Abhidhamma only talks in terms of phenomena, never talks about people. The Buddha always talks about people, because these are talks given to people. But the Abhidhamma is a collection of what he taught but in terms of phenomena. Thus the Lord, a teacher, he who is skilled in this world's speech, can use it and not lie. 
So he uses this world's speech, he says I and me and you and he and she, and uses it as the conventional terminology. And this is what he's trying to tell um, our friend here, Chitta, elephant trainer's son. That's right, an elephant trainer's son. Very important job in the old days, an elephant trainer, and the son, of course, would inherit that job. Mahout, called the Mahout. To this day, they are very uh, respected in Sri Lanka and probably also in Thailand. Um, so he tells them that these are terms of speech, expressions, this self-business. They are all terms of speech and expressions which are in common usage in the world, but he uses them without misunderstanding them, but they are only being used because they are uh, common terminology. They are not really what is really there. So um, he has first taught him that you can only know what you put your mind on, and then he teaches him that the, um, the self is only a term, and the formless self is more so, it's only a terminology. That with a chitta and, and also puttapada who is still present, don't think that the Buddha is actually subscribing to these three selves. Because he hasn't told them anything how to get rid of these three selves. He just tells them that they are, um, that we have to purify our mental and emotional states and then we will get super knowledge. And he's still using those three selves as uh, a teaching mode. So now he's saying, well, I'm only doing that because this is the way people understand. Right? Any questions? Anything? The Buddha. Well, he negates all of them in the same way. He negates all of them by saying, We teach a doctrine for getting rid of these selves, and this doctrine teaches that the defiling mind mental states disappear and states tending to purification grow strong and one gains and remains in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now having realized and attained it by one's own super knowledge. So what he's teaching, he says, is purification, what we discussed yesterday, purification of mental emotional states which are very important to substitution uh, actions of the negative to substitute that with the positive. And as they disappear and the purification grows strong, one can remain in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now. And then, um, having realized and attained it by one's own super knowledge, because of the purity that we gain, 
we are then able, because of the purification system, we are then able to use the, the methods for insight to seeing that there aren't any of those three thoughts present. But the purification is very much um, uh, emphasized here. Purification of mental emotional state. And obviously everybody knows that without that, there's no way. I mean, if one is angry, one can't meditate. There's no way one can. And if one is uh, upset or, or uh, uh, fearful or anxious, that's all one is then. Upset, fearful or anxious. But if one has goodness and purity within, then one can have an, a totally different approach to self and the world. So this is very much emphasized the purification, and with that purification then come the jhanas, which already went ahead of this. They were already before. And with the jhanas comes an understanding, and with the understanding comes then the ability to see, to have the inside path, and I got as far as the um, five aggregates and cause and conditions. There are quite a number more of inside steps which we can, will still discuss as we go along here. Yes, Fred. You spoke about the first course to me. Mm-hmm. Now my I never said the word. I never used the word first cause. Wouldn't dare. Would you like to listen to the tape and find it? <laughs> I never use that. Besides, it's not my way of language. I don't use that word. I said causes and conditions, which is one way of seeing oneself differently, that there are causes for, for what we're doing, and that everything is based on a condition. Mm. That's about it. And that there is, for our sense, um, for instance, for our eating, there is the uh, uh, craving for survival. That's about it. That's as far as we went on that. Mm. And the, the Buddha did not uh, specify the beginning of the universe, but he did specify that ignorance is the beginning of our misery. the Dukkha. And that means ignoring the Four Noble Truths. I've got another question. It relates to the sense contact, which is followed by feeling and the labeling of feeling. Now, are you talking about actually a physiological arousal? Is that what you, what, what you describe? What am I talking about? A physiological well, arousal? Is that, is that physiological? Now that's a sensation. Physical is a sensation. Mm. No, feeling is feeling. Well, take an example such as being angry. It certainly is a lot of physical activity going on. Well, that's already the end of the world. Angry, being angry is already the end result of the whole business. Mm. 
First you hear somebody say something to you. So you have a sense contact. And as you hear it, you get an unpleasant feeling. And the mind then perceives it as nasty. And then you get angry. And what happens while you're angry? Well, anything may happen. You might get red in the face. You might get your hair stand on end. You might start punching the guy in the nose or whatever. Lots of stuff can happen then. So that feeling that takes place after the sense contact, that's not a physical sensation. It's either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. That starts the whole ball rolling. So the physical sensation it follows after? Not necessarily. It may. Well, in the case of the anger, you said... Well, you might. You might have a physical sensation. It may not. Mm. I mean, some you might not. You might just be angry. Uh, well, you usually get a bit hot inside, I suppose, when you get angry. But, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be physical. It can just be emotional. I mean, anger is an emotional state, isn't it? That is accompanied by some unpleasant physical feelings. It's a, it's a side result. The main aspect of it is an emotional. It's emotional. And because you are now angry, and you are now um, actually having this anger that is, is coming out, you are getting again unpleasant feeling. And as you're getting again unpleasant feeling, the mind says, terrible, and you're getting even more angry now. And as it goes on and on and on, then eventually you hate the person for the rest of your life. Because it's a, it's a cumulative effect, unless we stop it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the more often we do it, the easier it comes. The more often we get angry, the easier it is for us to get angry becomes a real habit then. I mean, some some people are habitually angry. Very difficult to find them when they're not. <laughs> they always have some cause for it. <laughs> and the more we, we, we cultivate our lovingness and our goodness, the more habitually we are loving and good which also shows us that there's nobody in there. We can change the whole structure of the being completely. And change the structure completely if we have a mind that's strong enough, which is what we try to do through meditation. Is that clear? So, just take me through the, this chain again. There's the sense contact, the feeling, the labeling of the feeling. Not the labeling of the feeling, so. Well, yes, well, the, you can label the feeling, but you can also uh, label uh, in accordance. Yeah, you do a label in accordance with the feeling, but you might also label quite objectively. I mean, if you see a flower, and you see the, the eye can't see flowers, 
the eye sees color and form. And you get a pleasant feeling, and the mind then perceives and says flower. Then, of course, the next step is the mental reaction is, uh, oh, this looks very nice here, this is a nice place, or uh, uh, I'd like to have one like that in my garden, or I wonder what its name is, or uh, uh, is it red or is it pink, and whatever. You know. So it can be quite a neutral, objective um, uh, perception, flower, just the name, giving a name. But it could also be a naming of the feeling, which could say it's nice. And then the mental reaction says, um, yeah, that's very nice, I'll have that, or I'll pluck it and put it in my room, or whatever. I mean, this is not, this is arbitrary, whatever the mind does. And the next person might see the same flower, look at it and say, such a mess, why don't they leave the bush the way it is? The same flower. They get, they're, they're habituated to unpleasant feelings. The feeling that they get is, is a, is a um, rejection, a feeling of unpleasantness. And then the perception comes unnatural. And then the reaction is they should leave the bush the way it is. Shouldn't plant flowers. And the first person thought, oh, very nice place. Same flower. Same eye contact. Sense contact which again shows that we can do what we like with our mind if we just take care. And nothing could be more beneficial for ourselves. And this is the way not to pollute the environment. And it's the only way not to pollute the environment by keeping our mind on a level where it has goodness and purity as much as we can. Now, does that make this, this uh, sequence clear? Try it out tomorrow. Mm. We'll try it out in the garden. Okay? Meet you at 8 o'clock in the garden and we'll try it out. Okay? <laughs> yes. So, the state of mind in which you are when the contact uh, can influence the feeling and you can have a pleasant or unpleasant feeling that depends more of your state of mind than of the contact. Mm. So sometimes you can find a, like a flower and have a pleasant mm. contact and, and some other time because you are in a bad mood you can have an unpleasant contact mm. in the same aspect. Yes, but it's not it doesn't start like that. It's uh, because you are because your state of consciousness is in is the, your per, your state of consciousness influences your perception. The, the contact, the eye contact, is always the same. It's always this, never changes. That's always the same. That cannot be changed. The feeling, yes, the feeling can is very much influenced. But the perception is the one that's most influenced. And then, of course, your mental reaction is depending on that. So this actual thing doesn't change. But the feeling does. This can is influenced. Yes. And uh, somebody...
Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Now watch your breath lovingly. Love the breath. Because it means your life. Truly feel love towards your breath, towards your life. Now as you love your breath, become aware that you cherish your life. Feel that. Feel the love for your breath and cherishing your own life. Without it, you wouldn't be. Feel the love and the cherishing. And as you love your own breath and cherish your own life, you can infer that all living beings cherish their own life. Feel with them. Cherish them too. Wherever you like to, Put your attention on the people around you. Cherish their life with them. Love their breath with them.
on the an- put your attention on the animals in the forest. Cherish their life with them. Feel the love that you have for your life as the same as the love they have for their life. And then think of people you know. How they love and cherish their life. Share that with them. Cherish their life. Think of anyone you would like to be connected with, especially any particular person you really want to be close to and cherish the life of that person with him or her. Now think of anyone you don't want to be connected with and recognize that that person cherishes her or his life equally and love and cherish that person's life too together with him or her. Think of living beings everywhere, around here, further away, and know how each one cherishes their own life. Feel totally connected 
with each one, by cherishing their lives with them. 